Our Father, we come before you this morning declaring that our only hope is Jesus Christ. We thank you so much, Father, for the opportunity to freely gather today in worship and in fellowship and in rejoicing. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy, but most importantly, for the freedom to know you. We thank you that we in Christ have been freed from the penalty of sin. We thank you that in Christ we have been freed from the power of sin. And we thank you that there is coming a day that in Christ we will be freed from even the very presence of sin. As we enter into this time of worship through your word today, Father, would you, Holy Spirit, move in this place? Would you do the work of illumination for your word into our hearts and minds to show us how to know you all the more today? Would you draw our hearts to your heart in truth? Be with our time together today, God. May our time in the word edify us as it glorifies you. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you are a guest with us, my name is Dave Eatman. I serve here on our pastoral staff as pastor of teaching, spiritual formation. Always an honor and a joy to be able to lead us in our time together in the Word. Uh, Some of you might know that in addition to serving here at Cross, I also serve in the Navy Reserve as a chaplain. And earlier this year, I was in our basic leadership course And every day we would begin that time by standing up and going to attention and reciting together the Sailor's Creed. And there's a line in the Sailor's Creed that really just sticks with me and it resonated with me. Uh, And it goes like this, I represent the fighting spirit of the Navy and those who have gone before me to defend freedom and democracy around the world. This is Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S. where we take time to pause and remember the lives of sacrifice lived on behalf of our nation and for our freedoms. It's a time in the life of our church where we remember the lives of those who have gone before us in the faith, who have looked towards faith in a Messiah as we prepare as a church to move from one season of being mobile into a new season of having our first permanent home. And ultimately, it's a time where we can pause to reflect on the one, Jesus, who lived the ultimate life of sacrifice for our ultimate eternal freedom. And so it was with those thoughts in mind as I tried to discern which direction the Lord would have us to go today, that my mind went to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, possibly a familiar passage uh, for some of you, as we reflect on the faith of those who have preceded us and especially upon the finished work of the one who has provided for us and for our eternity. We here at Cross tend to walk through books of the Bible expositorily, meaning we go through verse by verse, line by line, and and in doing so, that helps us stay within the context of whatever text and whatever scripture we're preaching from. And so on a day like today, when we're just gonna dive right into a book that we've not been walking through, it'd be helpful if we take a moment before we jump in, just to set a little context for the letter and for the letter of Hebrews. Hebrews is an interesting book among the two New Testament writings, in part because there's no known author. There's obviously an author for, but we don't know 
who that is. The Gospels, we know who each of those with some level of certainty were attributed to and written by. Most of the letters throughout the New Testament we know were written by Paul or by James or by Peter or by John. Hebrews is interesting in the fact that we're not really sure who wrote it. There's been no less than probably 10 or 12 people that have been put forward over time as the authors, such as Paul and Luke and Barnabas and Clement. Uh, Apollos uh, was also one of the ones, if you remember Apollos from uh, Corinthians. Uh, I actually tend to think it's possible it could be him, but again, that's conjecture. We don't truly know. We can, though, learn a few facts about the author. We see, as we survey Hebrews, that we presume the author was probably male, uh, anytime the personal pronoun in the Greek is used throughout the letter, it's a male personal pronoun, and so it seems that the author was male. Uh, it seems the author was Jewish. He begins the letter saying, our fathers, talking about the fathers of the nation of Israel. He has an in-depth knowledge of Jewish ritual practices. He knew those he was writing to. We see familiar language as he's beginning to close out the letter in chapter 13. He knew those that he was writing to, knew his recipients. He was also a friend of Timothy. So he was a contemporary, a friend of uh, Timothy in the early church. And we also see, interestingly, it does not appear he was an eyewitness of Jesus. In chapter 2, there's a reference to those things that were handed down to us, passed down to us by the apostles. So it seems that uh, it was not one of the apostles that actually wrote Hebrews. The audience of the letter is written to Hellenistic Jewish Christians. What that means is these were individuals who were uh, Jewish by birth, by ethnicity, but they had not been raised. They did not live within the nation of Israel. They lived in uh, the Greek-speaking world around, and so they would have been considered Hellenistic Jews, but they were also those who had come to faith in Christ. They had been redeemed. They had become followers of Christ. We see that, again, to the reference of the Jewish heritage throughout, where the author references our fathers. He calls them children of Abraham, we see his use of Jewish customs as a reference point. This is something the audience would have been very familiar with. And we see their Greek influence in the fact that as he quotes the, New, the Old Testament extensively, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Finally, the date. Uh, we don't really know uh, exactly with precision, but it does appear it was written sometime before 70 AD. 70 AD is, AD is important in church history because it was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the multitude of references to the Jewish sacrificial system in the book of Hebrews refer to it in present tense as if they were still happening. And so apparently this letter was written sometime prior to 70 AD. The mention of Timothy brings it uh, to Timothy's timeline sometime before 70 AD. And then a mu much of the context, the general cultural context that this letter was written in seems to be extensive persecution, which would point to most likely the reign of Nero in the 50s and 60s. So as we look at the context of Hebrews today, the main thing we need to keep in mind, the main thing to carry with us as we go into it, is that generally the overall theme of this book could be summed up in one word, and that is better. That Jesus is better. The word better or more or greater is used more than 25 times throughout Hebrews. In chapters 1 and 2, we see how Jesus in his deity is better than any other heavenly being. In chapters 3 through 7, we see how Jesus in his humanity is better than any other earthly being, including the high priest, including Moses. We see in chapters 8 through 10 how Jesus' sacrifice is better than that of the old covenant, that of the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And as we approach our text today, 
About halfway into chapter 10, the author begins to call upon his readers to endure in a culture that's hostile to their faith. So with the context set and these things in mind, let's dive into our passage today in Hebrews chapter 12 and consider together how we are empowered to finish our race well when we look to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. So let's look again together at our text, Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. The author writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Our text today begins with therefore, calling our attention back to what was preceding chapter 12 and first an exhortation to remember the faithful of the past. Chapter 11 is often cited as the Hebrews, sorry, this was giving me a fit in the first service, I'm trying to keep it from doing so in the second. Hebrews chapter 11 is often cited as the Hebrews hall of faith, provides us a summary of the faith of 16 different individuals and a host of unnamed others. And if you look back across Hebrews chapter 11, you see that we can quickly see a summary of the faith of saints of old. We can see the faith of the second child ever born, Abel. We see the faith of Noah that saved he and his family from God's great reset. We see the faith of Abraham that established the old covenant and provided the pattern of faith for the new. We see the faith of Moses that established the nation of Israel and brought them to the doorway of the promised land. We see the faith of David, who became a man after God's own heart. We see the faith of the prophets who proclaimed the word of the Lord throughout hostile and apostate generations. And in each case, we see how these individuals did some amazing things, and yet in each case, it is their faith in God that is credited for their actions. It is these saints who have gone before us that the writer of Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses to our own race. And what's awesome about this cloud of witnesses, it's not just talking about the giants of the faith from the Old Testament that are listed here, it's talking about also the giants of the faith in our own lives. Fathers, mothers, grandparents, pastors, friends, both those we read about in scripture and those who have been so dear to us personally whose lives have been rooted in faith in their creator and in their savior, make up what the author calls this great cloud of witnesses. And notice here, he writes, we are surrounded by them. And the analogy here that the writer's using is one from athletics. It's that of a race. And in the Greco-Roman world, a race would often take place inside of a stadium. And so the stadium would be packed with spectators all around watching the race unfold. And what are the spectators doing? They're cheering on their favorite athlete. The picture we get here is a witness of the faithful who have gone before us. Those whose faith allowed them to do some pretty incredible things, as well as a million ordinary things, whose trust was rooted in eternity with their heavenly father, whose faith was grounded in the coming Messiah, and in our day, whose faith is grounded in the finished work of Christ. The witness of their faith surrounds us. 
is cheering us on in solidarity in our own race and towards our own finish line. What the author is getting to is there's a unity that comes from being reminded of those who over 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth, preceding that, all of those who looked forward to the day of Christ. There's a unity that comes from knowing that all of these are cheering us on, that now we are in our day and have our opportunity to run our race. Paul captures it this way, this unity of the brotherhood of the saints, the fellowship of the saints in Ephesians chapter two. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a unity of the faith as we reflect on the faithfulness of all those who have gone before us. And one final thought on this point before we move on in our text. The author note doesn't say that these were perfect people. The author says they were faithful people. Hebrews eleven thirty nine, 39, just proceeding, says that they were all commended through their morality. No. They were all commended through their sinlessness. No. They were all commended through their righteousness. No. They were all commended through their faith. And the good news of the lives of the witnesses who have gone before us, whose witness surrounds us and cheers us on in our own race with Christ is it's not our own performance or ability or righteousness that receives the commendation well done. It's our faith. When we look back at the list of those who are commended for their faith, we see Noah, the drunk. We see Rahab, the prostitute. We see Jacob, the deceiver. We see Moses, the murderer. We see Samson and his carnality. We see David and his adultery. We see me and my sin, you and your sin. And the author both begins and concludes his summary of the faith of those who have gone before us with a reminder that it was in fact their faith, not their performance, that was commended. In Hebrews 11 too, he says, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. And in the text just referenced in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, he said, all these were commended through their faith. When our hearts are regenerated by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, when our hearts are turned to him in faith and we cling to him as our eternal hope, we join this great cloud of witnesses to the matchless grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and are at once empowered to run the race that is set before us well to the end. So as we're encouraged by the witness of those who have gone before us on this great journey of faith, we must next seek to be unhindered that we might run with endurance in the present. Again, Hebrews 12.1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, just as they have done in the past, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Our author has just gone into great detail to emphasize the foundational and necessary nature of our faith, and now he calls our attention that though their commendation has come from their unwavering faith, their endurance, their ability to stick to the race, to stay in the race, 
Their sustainment comes from laying aside. He first calls us to lay aside every weight. Again, the analogy here, the the picture that the author is giving us is that of a race. And in ancient games, runners would go to the extreme to shed any weight possible that would allow them to run with endurance, that would allow them to perform well. And when I say go to the extreme, I mean they would run naked. That's, I mean, that's not a joke. That's like for real. They would run naked. That's extreme, right? Laying aside every weight was extreme for them. They would go to such extreme to lay aside every weight that they would run naked. In our day, thankfully, we do not go to that extreme, or at least I've never seen that. Runners today will, will still take measures to shed weight with lighter shoes and clothing. Even sometimes runners will shave body hair in an attempt to reduce friction and increase performance. And what the author's trying to say here is that we, we need to understand that weight slows us down. When I was back in um, chaplain school earlier in the year, we did a workout called the MRF. How many of my military folks have done the MRF? Yep, several, and some non-military, I see. Several of you have done it. If you're not familiar with that workout, uh, it, it includes 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and two miles of running, wearing full, uh, your full clothing boots and a 20-pound at least vest. Not fun. <laughs> not for me anyway. And I can tell you the entire time I was doing that, I felt the weight of that clothing, the weight of those boots, the weight of that vest that was adding to the difficulty for that workout and drawing at my endurance. And when I got to the end of it, just taking that vest off, man, it felt like I had released the world off my shoulders. In this, in this race of faith to the end, the more that we are able to lay aside the weights that burden us and weigh us down, the more we will be prepared to have endurance to run our race. The author is making the point that if athletes go to extreme measures to do that in a race, how much more should we in our race of faith? <clears throat> and how do we do this? Peter gives us some helpful thoughts in his epistle. In 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We can run through this earth. We go through this life carrying the weight and the burden and the care and the anxiety of life. And Peter's encouragement here is to cast those things off. Cast aside our burdens. Cast aside our fears and anxieties. Cast aside our divided interests and our worldly ambitions. Cast those on Jesus so that we might run with endurance. But not only does our author point to the burdens and cares and concerns that weigh us down, he also says to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. Peter continues in 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We've already unpacked the beautiful truth of the good news that it's our faith alone that commends us 
before the Father, but we must take note that sin itself will hinder our ability to run well and to run with endurance. Notice how the author of Hebrews captures this. He says, the sin that clings so closely. That could literally be translated the sin that so easily distracts us. Sin by its nature entices us. It distracts us. It draws us away from fellowship from our Lord. God would tell Cain that sin's desire is for him and it's crouching at the door. James writes that it's being lured and enticed by our own desires that gives birth to sin. And so the author has given us this picture of a runner who's being loaded down and trying to carry all of these heavy weights with him as he runs. And even as he does that, he's being pulled back and drawn back in the race and slowed down by the sins that are pulling at him. And he tells us to lay them aside. And how do we do this? How do we lay aside the weights? How do we lay aside the sin? We look to Jesus. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin in our lives draws us away from fellowship with our heavenly father and compels us to seek cheap substitutes for his matchless joy and blessings. And by laying aside the cares of this life, by laying aside the sins that so easily draw us out of fellowship with him, we are positioned to run our race well. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. I've had the blessing, some would maybe not call it that, but I've had the blessing twice in my life to run a marathon. And uh, I can promise you that is that requires, at least for me, endurance. And uh, some of you know, uh, might know Paul and Kathy Little. I ran it with Paul Little, and then some of you also might know Nick and Emily Suddeth. Nick was a chaplain here a few years ago. If you know Nick, he's pretty compulsive uh, individual, and uh, he would laugh at me saying that because it's true. But he just... Came up to Paul and I one day and he said, hey, we're going to run the Marine Corps Marathon. And we're like, what are you talking about? But he signed us all up and we did. So so as the months progressed, right, as the months progressed, we began, I mean, running's kind of always been a part of my life off and on. So at the beginning, it wasn't that bad, you know, three or four miles. I could, I could keep up with that. It wasn't so bad. But as the miles began to increase, man, I realized, hey, these shoes are not working, right? They are pretty heavy. I need to get some lighter shoes that, that provide some good support. As I'm running through the heat of a Beaufort summer, I'm, these cotton clothes, man, like, this isn't working. These things are getting soaked and they're weighing me down and they're chafing. I need to get some lighter clothes. As the miles got farther and farther, I realized, hey, I can't make the distance off of the food that I ate yesterday or even this morning. I need some ongoing nourishment and sustainment as I'm gonna to continue to run. And so we would measure out carefully just the right amount of liquid and, and, and carry just the right amount of, of solid things to take with us to try to make it to the end. Even during the race, we had my wife, Laurie, and our daughter, Whitney, uh, positioned, I think, around mile 17 to, with resupply so we just could cut down on how much we needed to carry so that we could do the handoff and, and make it to the end. During the race, we were surrounded, man, surrounded by people spectators that we didn't even know. They were cheering us on to the finish line. And even during the race, we would from time to time come up on some who were maybe slowing down or struggling and we would give them a word of encouragement. There were times that others would come along us that as we were struggling and give us 
a word of encouragement. This race, this life that we are on with Christ requires endurance if we are to finish well to the end. And the author of Hebrews is giving us the, the way to do this, how we can run with endurance to the end. One more thing I'd like us to note here before we move to our final point. He says, run the race that is set before us. This is an individual race. Though we are running it together, we each have our own race to run. Maybe your race is serving in full-time ministry with all of its joys and challenges. Maybe your race is raising children to love and serve the Lord in a culture that's hostile to their faith. Maybe your race is seeking to honor the Lord in your employment with coworkers who may ridicule your lifestyle or not understand why you do what you do. Maybe it's standing boldly for the Lord among your fellow teenagers or peers who cast shade because of your identification with Christ. Maybe your race is trusting in the Lord through sickness or financial difficulty or other burdens, knowing that he will come through in his time and in his way. Maybe your race is being so easily distracted by sin for the hundredth time and choosing once more to repent and trust in the limitless grace and mercy of Jesus. We all have our race to run. And there's only one way we are going to be able to run our race with endurance. And that is ultimately to look to Jesus. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are following Christ, we each have our individual race to run, and we can be encouraged by the faithfulness of those who have gone before us. We can ensure we are building endurance through living unhindered and unburdened lives for the glory of God, but ultimately we will only find endurance, we will only find success to remain faithful and endure to the end when we look to Jesus. And so we see Hebrews 12, chapter Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We remember the faithful of our past. We seek to run with endurance in the present, but ultimately, it is only by looking to Jesus that we can rejoice in the assurance of our future. Looking to Jesus. The weight of the text here, some translations even capture this way, to fix our eyes upon Jesus. To tune out and tone out every other that may be trying to distract us and triangulate our entire focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus. The secret to running with endurance, the secret to finishing strong. The secret to hearing well done, good and faithful servant is looking to Jesus. We see here in the text that Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the author. He created it. He's the originator. He is the alpha. Colossians 1, Paul captures this. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven 
and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the originator of our faith. But not only is Jesus the founder, he is also the finisher. He's the perfecter. He's the completer. He is the omega. Peter captures it this way in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why? Why did Jesus create all things? Why did Jesus choose to take upon himself once and for all the wrath and penalty due our sin? Our text answers the question for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. And what is the joy set before Jesus? The joy set before Jesus is to display his radical grace and mercy and forgiveness to his children. And do we believe this, church? Do we believe that it brings Jesus joy to show us mercy one more time? To forgive us one more time? To show us grace one more time? To restore us one more time? To strengthen us one more time? Or do we secretly in our hearts believe that Jesus begrudgingly does this 70 times seven? Listen to how Puritan Thomas Goodwin captures the heart of Jesus for sinners. Goodwin writes, The glory and happiness of Christ are enlarged and increased still as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. So as when their sins are pardoned, their hearts more sanctified, their spirits comforted. Then he comes to see the fruit of his labor and is comforted thereby, for he is the more glorified by it. Yea, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than they themselves can be. Get this, church. When Jesus showers you with his love and his grace and his mercy, he receives much more joy than you ever could in doing that for you. Jesus endured the horrors of a Roman cross because of the joy set before him. Jesus despised, in other words, thought lightly of or ignored the shame of public execution and condemnation because of the joy set before him. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant with its rules and its laws and its demands and provided a once and for all complete and perfect sacrifice for you and for me for the joy that was set before him. And what is the joy set before Jesus? Not eternity, it was already his. Not being in the presence of his father, he already was. The joy set before Jesus is to once and for all redeem you to himself, restore your soul, and shower you with love and compassion and forgiveness and acceptance and belonging through his matchless and endless mercy and grace. Churches, we face each new day with its challenges, each new day with its burdens, each new day with its difficulties and with its battles 
with sin. Jesus is inviting us. He's calling us. He's beckoning us. Look to me. Jesus says, look to me. I will receive you. Jesus says, look to me. I will accept you. Jesus says, look to me. I will forgive you. Jesus says, look to me. I will restore you. Jesus says, look to me. I will strengthen you. And as we saw in our study in Jude, Jesus says, look to me. I will keep you. We at Cross Community Church are preparing to enter into a new season of our life and ministry as a church. As we move from being mobile into a permanent home, as we begin to see how the Lord uses this ministry and life of our body to move forward in the next chapter. And so as we do that, as we prepare to move into that season, as we close our time here together today, I would just like for each of us just to take a moment to consider where are we at in our own race? You know, it could be that you're here today and you are doing your best to lay aside every burden, to lay aside every sin and to run with endurance with Jesus. We praise God for that. My encouragement to you is to continue not to find commendation in those things that you're doing. Continue to find your commendation in your faith in looking to Jesus. Maybe the burdens of this life, maybe battles with sin are slowing you down or hindering your progress. The call to you today is to lay those things aside and look to Jesus. But it could be that you're sitting here today and you have not yet joined the race. It could be that you feel unwelcomed or unworthy because of your past or even your present. Friend, the call to you today is to look to Jesus. Whatever our need is today, as we close our time together in prayer, I would invite you to pray with me and to look to Jesus, our Alpha and our Omega, our author and finisher, to meet us, to meet you where you are today on your race. Church, look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come before you with glad and thankful hearts as we consider that the joy that was set before you was to redeem us, was to forgive us, was to restore us, and is to continue to do that as we run this race from here until the day that you reunite us with yourself. Father, we just thank you. We offer our gratitude and our thanks for how you have redeemed us, for the freedom that you have provided for us in Christ. We thank you that it was your joy to save sinners, that you receive glory from doing what you came to do, for redeeming a broken and fallen world unto yourself, for filling us with your spirit, for strengthening us, for all the burdens of this life, the things that we face, the sin that clings so closely, and to help us to run well, fixing our eyes upon you. Thank you, Father. So Lord, as we enter into this time 
of preparing to come to the table, we once again look to you. We look to your finished work that is represented here as we come to the Lord's table. And Lord, you know where each of us are today as we prepare our hearts to come before you, as we prepare our hearts to join in fellowship with one another in remembering your sacrifice on our behalf. Holy Spirit, would you just help us to see where we are on this race? Would you strengthen us for continuing to run well? Would you embolden us and strengthen us to lay aside those things that weigh us down and hold us back? Would you strengthen us and show us the safety and the beauty of being able to run to you in our sin, to bring that to you and to seek restoration as we bring it to you in repentance and confession? And Lord, if there are those here that are not on the race, would you just impress upon their hearts today in your love and in your grace that your arms are open and you are beckoning them to look to you. So Father, as we enter into this time and space of communion, help us to once again turn our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask these things in your name. Amen.